I'm delighted you're here. Glad you're online or in the room. Um, on Saturday, this is last Saturday, you know, if you're a guest, you know, we have a Brentwood congregation and a Franklin congregation, and we teach live at both. And so I teach at Brentwood, and I'm teaching here today. So this is last Saturday as I was preparing this message. Um, I went in on a Saturday morning, and I was, I'd gotten a good ways into the message, but I pulled up the message, and I deleted the whole thing purposely. This was not one of those accident things that have happened to me at times, but no, I, I deleted it. And I, I did so not because I, I didn't like it or I didn't think it was appropriate or right or, or good, you know, to, to move forward. I deleted it uh, because of the, the, the week and, and really because of the day on Friday, my last Friday. And I said, I want to start this message differently in light of these things. So last Friday, you go back a week ago, Friday, um, I was at a memorial. I was doing a memorial for George Uribe's father, Jorge, uh, where he's 86. I was out um, Harpeth Hills. But while doing the memorial, uh, George is at um, the Brentwood campus. While doing the memorial, I got a call from uh, a friend, a member at uh, Brentwood uh, named Don Lazis. Don called me. And then it was one of those, I went, okay. I, then he called me again. And so in my mind, I knew he, he needs to get me. But I was literally doing the memorial. And so I, it was a little while before I could get back and, and, and get word of why Don was, was calling me. So why he was calling me was that he's, his um, daughter, Laura, uh, Laura's the third child. There's Katie, Donnie, Laura, Kevin, and then uh, Jake. Uh, his daughter, Laura, that, that morning had woken up and her, ba- her two-month-old baby had died. And we think SIDS, uh, but had passed. And so I finished this memorial and I got in my car from Harpeth Hills, drove over to South Nashville to be with the Lazarus family. So I spent my afternoon with Don, Don and Kathy and with Laura. And then um, a- after spending that time with them, I... Uh, went home, I got Lisa, and we drove to Pleasant View, Tennessee, because I had the great privilege of officiating a wedding for Emily Riddle and Ryan uh, Edmondson there. So from, from that morning to that afternoon to, to then wedding, and I'll, say, and I'll say this, this is so strange, in God's providence, this Friday, this, just this, you know, two days ago, Friday, uh, we had the memorial for Lainey Lazis, two months old, 62 days she lived, and we did the, the Brentwood campus, and just a, Don had sent me a text later to say it was a, it was a holy moment, and it was. Uh, Laura's uh, was a single mom. Uh, there's no dad involved in this per se, and so it's just Laura, you know, and her baby is beginning that journey as a single mom and then losing the baby. And one of the things you need to know about the Lazis family is that I mentioned there's Katie, Donnie, Laura, Kevin, and Luke. Well, Donnie, uh, seven years ago, 1st of March, uh, was killed in an auto accident. And so that service on Friday for all of us in that room was surreal in that here's the Lazarus family. And I spoke about it, you know, it's, it was, that was not the first time they sat on that front row and buried a loved one. And now burying their two month old baby girl. And as, uh, you know, Providence would have it, I went to the reception afterwards where they had a reception and then I met Lisa, parked my car over there on Moore's Lane, jumped in the car with Lisa, and drove to a wedding, 
where I, uh, it, this was, it was so sweet. It's Susan McKinney, who used to be on our staff for almost 20 years, our accountant and HR person, her youngest son. And I've known Susan since pre-married days, uh, had a wedding in Birmingham. And y'all, it was just pure joy. From this to just pure joy, the reason I share that with you is to remind us as we work our way through the book of Ruth and we speak of God's providence. And, and when we say that, you know, we say it this way, the Westminster Shorter Catechism has articulated it. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. So when we, we believe that, that puts God square in the middle of this and of this and of everything in between. It is to say that God's in control. And Paul, I mean, Carl said it so well, it's as we sing this song, perfect in all your ways, really? Really, perfect in all your ways? And y'all, I just want you to know you know, don't think I don't wrestle with it. Don't think, don't think Rob doesn't wrestle with, how do I get my head around God in the middle and ordering all things, all his creatures and all their actions for his good purpose. I will tell you the testimony of scripture is that in his holiness, wisdom and power beyond our ability to comprehend but not beyond our ability to trust. God works to preserve and govern all his creatures and all their actions toward his purposeful and glorious and good end. Remember what I said a few weeks ago that when we think of God's providence, we must think of it in the proximate and the ultimate sense. We must must hold God's providence in the proximate sense to know that in, in the immediate context of life that you and I live right now in fallen bodies in a fallen world, we are not immune to death and all his friends and all that brings and evil. And we're not immune to that, no. But we, we know in God's providence, he will work even in and through those things towards his ultimate end. And that is that day when you and I will be in Jesus's presence. And do you know, there will be no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow. This is not a pipe dream, you all, that we hope will happen one day. It's a reality because Jesus rose from the grave and he said that it is true. And do you know what must happen for us to pass from this life into that life that will be free from sin and loss and death? You know what must happen to us? We must die. I wanna invite you to pray with me for a moment. I wanna pray for Don and Kathy, pray for Laura. Um, They're a part of our body. I know you don't know them, but they're a part of our body. When one part grieves, we all grieve. And even as I say that story and I tell tell you of what's happened, there are some of you in the room that have walked this path. I know that. Pray with me, Father, Thank you that we can gather and we can sing, as Carl reminded us, in faith, we can sing, God, you're perfect in all your ways. 
We can sing, though the mountains fall into the sea, we're gonna trust you're in control. Boy, when, it, when life happens and we have to hold and believe that, oh, it is difficult. And it's only by your spirit we can trust and believe it. And so we, uh, the, the Lazarus family's church family, we pray for Laura. Immeasurable grace upon her, strength and hope as she moves out of the busyness of planning a memorial for her baby and all the goes with that and the reception and family in town. And she moves into a week now when life goes on and she doesn't know how to go on. Holy Spirit, be her deep comfort and peace. For Don and Kathy, Katie, Kevin and Luke, Kevin and Jake, I'm sorry. May they know your peace in a way that we can't even comprehend. We grieve with them and we hope with them. In Christ's name, amen. Well, with, with that, and that does prepare us, quite frankly, for our, our continued study through Ruth. I want you to take your booklets and I want you to turn to Ruth chapter two, either in your Bible or your booklet. We are in Ruth chapter two. Um, it's, a, it's a story and you know this, y'all. It's a story that begins with death. It begins with loss. It begins with famine and hunger. And we find that this man takes his family to Moab, Elimelech, and his two, and Elimelech dies and his two sons die. And so at the end of chapter one, we are, we are facing life and three, widow, three childless widows are facing life. That's what this story is. Tell me that's not relevant for, for, relevant for us when we live with losses. And so Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah in a hopeless, dark situation, Orpah uh, chooses to go back to Moab uh, Ruth, we, we studied this. Ruth makes a pledge to Naomi, I'm with you. And it's a beautiful statement of faith, profound statement of faith where she pledges herself, not just as we'll see today, not just to Naomi, but to Naomi's God. Uh, they have returned to Bethlehem because they've heard there's food. So it's that downward trend of chapter one. Wait, there's food and they arrive right at the barley harvest. Chapter two is three conversations. And so we've chosen to break it up that way. It's hard to break the chapters up and teach them in a narrative, but we've chosen to do it this way so that you have the first conversation is verses one through seven. And that's between this man, Boaz, who we now know, whoa, whoa that's a relative of theirs. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's, this is a big part of the story. And that's what Scott covered last week. Chapters, verses one through seven. And then there's the middle section, it's verses eight through 17. And here's another conversation, but this one is between Boaz and Ruth. And that's where we're gonna land today. And then the last verses are a conversation between Ruth and Naomi when she looks back on this day and goes, you're not gonna believe what happened today. Now that's gonna come after Easter because next Sunday we have Palm Sunday, then we have Easter, and then we'll pick, we will pick that last part up um, after Easter. I'm gonna remind you of what Scott said last week because this is gonna be very important in our application. 
And we see in, we see in those first few verses how just a small act of faith, when we, we choose a small act of faith, we watch God do something big, do something beyond anything we could ask or imagine. Now, they are, they are harvesting the barley. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. It'll be barley, then wheat. It's at least an eight-week window that they will be harvesting. Boaz has come to his field and the workers are out in the field gleaning. He notices uh, this young girl. He doesn't know who she is. And he asks about her and his supervisor says, that's Ruth who came back uh, with Naomi. Now, when I say they're harvesting, you know, think of, think of one of these fields, y'all, in this way. It would be, um, it's a field outside of Bethlehem. And um, uh, by the way, Rob and uh, Rob Howard and, and the 35 of us are in Israel right now on, uh, you know, doing the, their Israel trip. And they'll actually be in this area, but it's just outside of Bethlehem. Picture uh, a field just full of this stuff. Okay, just as, you know, like as 100 acres of, you know, we'd call it, you know, the field. They, they didn't delineate the field into that's Joe's plot, that's Steve's plot, that's Sue's plot. It's just a field. And so the farmers knew whose part that was, but you, you, you and I couldn't look at it and tell, which is what makes profound that it says, and she happened to come to Boaz's part of the field, God bringing her there. Well, the workers, of course, would, would go and cut this stuff. It would fall down, be on the ground. And then Boaz's, the women that worked for Boaz would come along and scoop a bunch of it up. They'd get a whole armful. Then they would wrap it up, just like this is wrapped up. And this would be a sheave, okay? They would take the sheaves and they would stack the sheaves there in the field until they were all gathered up and taken to the threshing floor, Boaz inquires about this young woman and the worker says, she's been working really hard right up till now. And so now I'm gonna read our text. I'm gonna read the whole and we're gonna do something a little different as we look at what it means for us. Notice verse eight, God's word to us today. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in, a, in your native land and you came to a people that you did not know. The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. 
So she gleaned in the field until morning, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. This is God's living word to you and I today. Now, I'm gonna tell you what I believe this passage is showing us. And what I believe the passage is showing us as a whole is perhaps the most tangible, concrete, oh, that's what it is, picture of God's hesed. We keep coming back to this word because it's so prominent in the Old Testament in the story. Hesed is that Hebrew word that means covenant faithfulness, steadfast love of God. It, it's the most important word we, need, we must grasp about God's love for us. I've got a book that's titled Unceasing Kindness, and I like that, and I think that might be a good way to hold it. When I say hesed, you say unceasing kindness. You know, it's, that's what it is. And, and this is what this story is revealing to us. What does God's hesed look like? How does it behave? How do we receive it? What, what does it mean? Now, the way I wanna show you this is not normally how I would do it. You know, I, I, use, I manuscript my messages, but I've not manuscripted this one. Uh, I'm actually gonna just invite you into my study. I've done this a couple of times through the years. Uh, for some people, it's helpful. For some, it's like, let's go back to the manuscript, you know, whatever. But, but, I, but there's a, part of the reason I wanna do this is I want, you to, I want you to see how Rob and I and how you can read your Bible and study your Bible and there's no magic. It's not like I have special powers, you know, to teach. I, I just read the text and, and, and do, and I'm gonna show you what you do when you read the text. All Bible studies built upon three foundations, observation, interpretation, and application. You look at it and then you look at it again. And then you look at it again and you go, what do I see? What's repeated? What, 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 do, I, what do I see in this passage? Then, you, then you, you'll interpret it. What does it mean? Okay, now in light of all that, what does it mean and within its context? And then it goes to, okay, then uh, how do I apply it? So what does it mean in my life and what do I do with it? I'm just gonna walk us through those things today. Now I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a little, I'm gonna, I can't cover everything I would wanna cover, but you'll, you'll get uh, the gist of this. Um, and, it, and it is, I want you to see, it's what we do. It's what we do when we study and read our Bible. So here's how I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna throw up here. When I study a passage, I don't do this all the time, because some, but, but I usually do this. I will print the text of the passage on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And this is what you're gonna see on the middle screen. And so I just put the text in the middle and I leave margins around it. So I knew, you know, weeks ago that I would be teaching Ruth 2, 8 through 17. And so I printed off the text. See, that's all I did. So I got a blank sheet of paper. And then over the course of the week or weeks that I'm studying, I read that text. And then the next day when I've got a few hours and I've blocked out for study, I read that text. And then the next day when I got a few hours to study, I, I'm just telling you, you, I just keep reading it. It's not like I sit down and I make all these notes in one reading. No, no, you don't, I don't. I have to keep reading it. And so I wanna walk us through section by section and then I'm gonna make some applications for us as we move toward the end. So with that, look at the first few verses. Now you can read this and don't, don't go to the notes yet, I'll point them out, but it's then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. 
This story is happening in the days of the judges. And it's not safe to be in the fields for a young woman. And, and so when Boaz is speaking to her, please understand, and I say this on my notes, I wrote down, he's not thinking romantically, he's thinking fatherly. I said, he's thinking pastorally. He wants, he, he, and, and he's thinking provision. Y'all, he's saying to her, you need not wander around and waste your time trying to find a field that someone will let you glean in. You're in. You're, you're here and you will stay here through the whole harvest. And, and what you're gonna see as we move through this passage is God's hesed. It's not just here's something and it's not just here's enough. God's hesed is here's more than enough for you. That's what we see as we move through the passage. Now, I noted here, he's not thinking romantically, he's thinking fatherly. Um, I've already said he's thinking protecting her. He's thinking of provision. Um, I, I also want you to know, I, I, I think the context and the history tells us he's not thinking romantically. One of the things we can tend to do, and I've got a, there's a book on this called Misreading, Misreading the Scripture with Western Eyes. So we read our Bible and we kind of put our cultural norm on it. And so we read it kind of like, this is how we, this is how our culture works. For example, you read this story and some commentators do, some, some you know, studies will show, will say, well, Boaz, a cute girl, he's romantically interested. And so he's doing this in a, from a romantic standpoint. I, I don't believe there's a whiff of that in this story. There's no, there's no indications in the text itself that would give us that, not even later, which is gonna be fascinating when we get to three and four. Because it's our Western eyes that would jump to that. Because how do, how do we as Westerners go about getting married generally? You know, it's girl or boy, you know, you know, boy sees girl, she's cute. Gets close to girl, his heart starts to flutter. Talks to girl, he's got a little, you know, he's flush because he's feeling romantic feelings. They go out, they spend time, those romantic feelings grow and deepen. And it's like, I feel so strongly in love. I'm gonna marry, let's get married. That's what we do. That's, that's our Western path, isn't it? But you know, that's not the path of, of, of this culture nor of many cultures in the world. You know, what the, you know what the path is for many cultures in the world, including, you know, I'm Japanese and, 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 Jap and Japan still happens many times. It's not boy meets girl. It's mom and dad introduce girl to boy. This is Susie and this is who you'll marry. <laughs> because we know her, we know her family, we, and, 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 and you'll marry and romance will, will develop, you see? So there's none, no romance in this, he's pastoral. Uh, again, I, I, I really believe it. It's, the text is showing us a picture of God's hesed and how it develops and how it's expressed. Let's go to the next slide. Oh, well, go ahead, go to the next slide because there's, there's other things I'll come back to. It says, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, why? said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? grace, unmerited favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner, I don't belong. I'm not gonna camp on Ruth's conversation here. I want us to focus on Boaz's, but I'll show you how her statements frame what the author wants us to see. I will note here, she's, she views herself as I'm not one, I'm not in. I mean, I'm a Moabite. And, and it's a beautiful picture and how Boaz corrects her to show her how deeply she is in. Let's go to the next slide. We're gonna pick up verse 11 all the way to 12. He says, but Boaz answered her and he said, 
all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. I, I, I know what happened, how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know. Now, notice I circled left a land and you came to a people you did not know. Now, the reason I circled those you all is, and I didn't, I didn't do this right off the bat, but the more I read it, I went, that just sounds so familiar. Who in the Bible left family, mother and father, uh, left their homeland and went to a land that they did not know? It's not a trick question. Who else in the Bible did that? Abraham, y'all, this is no accident that we see Ruth put on par with father Abraham, a Moabite? Are you kidding me? No, a Moabite with the faith of Abraham. I love the fact that I, 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 I wrote this sometime. I said, I see you. I, I, I want you to note here that Ruth, think about her story. She's come, she's made this fidelity pledge to her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law gets home and says, man, look, I went away full, but I've come back empty. She's standing right there. And now Boaz sees her. I know your story. I know what it costs you to leave your family and your culture and land. And you pledged yourself and you came here to a land you didn't know. I see you. Do you know how that, that all of us are wired and made to, with the need to be seen? What's attachment theory <laughs> with a baby? That you see, that child knows they're seen. It's the same with adults that we all need in our life. People who see us, who know our story and are there. It, it's, we can't live without it. And here it comes from Boaz. He sees her. Note, he says, the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, whose wings you have come to, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is such a familiar phrase in our Old Testament where God is described you know, as having wings that we come under. Listen to Psalm 36, seven, how precious is your unfailing love, O God. All humanity finds shelter in the shadow of your wings. Have mercy on me. This is Psalm 57. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. I look to you for protection. How? I will hide beneath the shadow of your wing until danger passes by. What Boaz is noting is that, is that Ruth didn't just pledge herself to Naomi, but she has pledged herself to the God of Israel. You have sought refuge under his wings. Let me put this to you in everyday terminology for us. You've come to faith in Jesus. <laughs> You've entered the family by putting your faith in God. That's what she did. And Boaz makes clear and makes it clear to her that she knows that. And he knows that it is only the Lord, it is the God of Israel who can repay and reward her. Now, listen, she did not pledge herself to Naomi or God in order to get something back. Those words can lend to that. But this word, uh, repay, reward, the root of that word is the root word shalom. 
the Lord shalom you. Shalom is, is peace. And we know it's not just the absence of conflict, it's the Lord make you whole. The Lord give you all you were intended to have and be. He knows that only God does that. And he prays God does that for her. Then I, I just, you know, like you're gonna see these words where I say peace and the other, other slide I put provision, said make you whole, rest in peace. Um, she, I'm, I'm gonna get it on the other slide where, where you go, man, Boaz has just brought her in. Well, you'll see exactly how he's brought her in. Let's go to the next slide. Um, she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. There she goes again, two times she says, I'm a foreigner, I don't belong. So do you know, see where she is? I, I, I'm not in, okay? That's, that's what she, two times she says that. Do you remember Naomi said, may the Lord deal kindly with you? So now she's going, oh my, Boaz is dealing hesed with me. So God's hesed, you see, always flows through God's people to others. That's the way it goes, through his people, to others. To just each other? No, to others, to all, to neighbor. Now, I wanna, I wanna show you how this particular part of the passage fits together and how the writer put it together. I'll go to the next slide and you'll see this because you'll see how I, why I drew these lines. I want you to note that verse 10 begins with, why have I found favor in your eyes? And then you do verse 11, then you do verse 12, and then you get to 13 and she says, I have found favor in your eyes. See, this is what you don't, I don't see when I read it until I just keep reading. I go, wait, wait, She's, she said this, then she said this. And so I drew a line, I said, why have, I have found favor, found favor, in your eyes, in your eyes. Y'all, this is no accident. And so the writer's helping us see that what, what, does, what does the favor, the unmerited favor of God look like? And in part, he says, it looks like this right here. It looks like just what Boaz is saying to her. Go to the next slide. Because I wanna stay on his, what, what he's doing. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. And I said, fullness overflowing. What's one of the themes of the story? Empty to full. That's part of the story and we see it coming out. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. I'll show you what that means in a minute. And do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles, pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Now, as more I looked at this and the more I read in, in commentaries, et cetera, I, I realized, wait, Boaz, Boaz has set a table for her. I didn't think about that, but think about it. He set a table for her. What does a table represent from Genesis to Revelation? <laughs> it represents fellowship. It represents belonging. And so here's Ruth, the Moabite, who says, I'm a foreigner, I don't belong. Boaz says, no, you've put your faith in Yahweh. You've come under his wing. Sit down and eat. And by the way, 
when, you, when we read this, oh, I read this statement, it just hit me. The guy said, one, of the, one commentary I read says, this looks like a table the Lord would prepare. It wasn't a snack. <laughs> They're out in the fields working. I mean, this is when, you know, when you used to work, you know, eat a bologna sandwich and then keep working. No, he sits them down and he feeds her and he feeds her to such a degree that she was satisfied and had some left over had some left over. Now, how did she get leftovers? Because I would suggest that Ruth is not the kind of a woman who, when given the opportunity, like here, I wanna feed you, would be grabbing extras and sticking them in her pockets to go, I'm gonna get more. You know, I don't picture that at all. I don't get any picture that Ruth's got that nature or character. No, why does she have more than she, why does she have more than enough? I'll tell you why. Because he passed to her roasted grain. Because he put more on her plate than she could eat. And he knew what he was doing to where she has some left over. And as we'll see, she takes it to her mother-in-law. I want you to notice here, and I made this, I wrote this down later in the week where um, let her glean even among the sheaves and pull some out from the bundles. The Old Testament law said this, and Rob touched on this weeks ago. There was in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, we find God says, when you plant your fields and when you harvest, do not harvest the corners leave the corners for the poor among you. It also says, when you harvest your field or you pick your grapes, when you've gone through and gotten what you could get, don't go back and get what you left. Rob said it, and I think it's so true, that the principle of being, of allowing gleaning, it goes against self-interest. Because most farmers, quite frankly. Now, again, I want you to think about this. This is in the days of judges when everybody did right what was right in their own eyes. I assure you there were farmers not leaving the corners. I assure you there were farmers that said, go back through the field two more times and get it all. But not Boaz. And I wanna suggest the reason Boaz left the corners and let the gleaners come is because while the legal document said Boaz owns this part of the field, who did Boaz believe owned the field? Let's not miss that because that's at the core of why we give financially or otherwise, that it's not mine. You see, if it's yours, then by golly, you're gonna get yours. I don't care about the poor that are gonna come through and try and get a little bit of scraps. Go get the scraps because it's, you see what I'm saying? Not Boaz, not at all. Now, one of the things I find fascinating is that when, when Boaz asked his worker, who is this? And he says, it says, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves. Now, I don't wanna read more into that than I need to, but like, that's not part of the law. Like she asked, let me do the sheaves. What did that mean? It meant, it meant rather than looking out here, like, you know what? There are some scraps that have fallen off of these things right here. And you could come up here and get this, you know, as, as barley. 
But if you can go to where the sheaves are, where it's all been picked and stacked, can I tell you, can I tell you what's underneath all this? A lot of grain. And she asked, can I go where the sheaves are? But that, but that wasn't, that's not what the law said. No, no, you, you can go in the corners and, and you go after they've harvested, you just go in the field and pick. And I think in part, y'all, because I've wondered this, says, so, so Boaz says, even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. What do you think the supervisor said when the first time when Ruth came and said, can I go among your sheaves? I think he said, I think he shamed her. Do you know, I think he absolutely put her down. Boaz comes along. You let her in those sheaves and you do not rebuke her. There's more. And just pull out some from the bundles. Not just the sheaves. I want you to toss some bundles so that she just comes across them. I mean, in my head, I go, I got the supervisors going, what the heck is going on here? I mean, we've worked all day and you're gonna give that to her and that's the good stuff. God's hesed love, man, and Ruth's courage and faith. Let her glean among the sheaves and give her, give her some bundles. Okay, let's get the last, get the last part. So she gleaned the field until evening. She beat out what she had gleaned. It was about an ephah of barley. It's about 30 pounds, we think, 29, 30. A day's wage is one to two pounds. So she comes home with 30, whole month's wage. A gleaner doesn't come up with 30 pounds of barley. That, that would be grand theft, you know. But Boaz hesed to her. Now, this is the Hesed heart of God. I wanna remind you, this is God's heart and there's a proximate and there's an ultimate sense to which the Hesed of God we experience. In the proximate sense, it's true and it's always true and we experience God's Hesed to us. It's the more than enough of God, but, it, but, it, but in this life, it's not void of death and loss and suffering and injustice, it's not. Jesus will say the same thing. Paul will say the same thing. But God's hesed in the ultimate sense is that day when we experience the hesed of God in its, I say on this, I wrote in my notes, in its fullness and its foreverness. So much more we could say, but you know what I'm saying? I hope you look at that passage and go, man, I think I wanna go look at that passage again because there's more there than I thought. And there is there's more than we've even covered here. I want you to notice that, go, would you go back one slide? Because I, I wanna catch this. Go back one slide and then I'm gonna go to application. Her gleaning among the sheaves is not according to the law. Her pulling some, him pulling some from the bundles is not according to the law. What is happening here? It's like, Boaz, that's not what the law said to do. But, but what, what we see is Boaz is not out to fulfill the requirement of the law. He is out to demonstrate the whole intent of the law. It, it's not the law's bad. You see what I'm saying though? 
What does Jesus do, right? Doesn't Jesus do the same thing? The law says, let, I read this. The law says, let them glean. Hesed says, let me feed them abundantly. And it does. Application of the text. Three parts to this application. Here's the first. That we go to the only one who is more than enough, and that's Jesus, which always brings us to the table. And so I wanna invite you, we come to the table in this application. We come to the only one who is more than enough. We come to the clearest demonstration of God's hesed to us, his unceasing kindness. It's in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. So we take the communion elements now. Go ahead and grab the, the bread off the top and go ahead and open up the cup. We'll do this together. With the bread in hand and the cup in hand, can I lead us to his table? He, Boaz, I I assure you, you guys, I I, I I can't assure you. I don't think there were any other reapers at lunch that day. Just Ruth. The, the, The landowner doesn't sit down and tell all the reapers, come over here and eat with me. Be called Ruth, who'd come to put herself under the wings of God. And so we come, Father, ourselves, having having put ourselves under your wings, those of us online in the room who have put our trust in the life, death, and resurrection, we come to your table regularly. We come to it in our corporate gatherings week by week to remind ourselves that you, Jesus, are the abundance of hesed to us. And we take the bread and we say, thank you that you suffered on our behalf. You were broken that we might not be broken. You were broken in a sense by our brokenness for us. Receive the bread with thanksgiving. And we receive the cup, Lord Jesus, the juice symbolic of your blood. Life is in the blood. You poured out your life on our behalf. You were separated from the Father. That's death. And you were separated so we would never have to be when we put our trust in you. And as we receive the cup today, we're reminded of your abundance to us and for us. And we proclaim not just that you died and rose again, but that you're coming one day to set all things right. Receive the cup.